Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a conversation which recently took place as part of our new series, Korean Cinema's Golden Decade, the 1960s, a sweeping retrospective running through September 17th that features 24 films from this remarkable period in Korean film history. Following the screening of Yoo Hyun-muk's 1961 South Korean classic, Aimless Bullet, film critic, lecturer, and author Darcy Paquet and series co-curators, the Korean Film Archive's Youngjin Eric Choi and Subway Cinema's Goran Topolovic led a discussion on the film. Banned in 1961 for its scathing critique of post-war reconstruction, but now widely held as one of the greatest Korean films ever made, Aimless Bullet was an unrelentingly bleak, noir-tingled melodrama set in the aftermath of the Korean War. An on-location tour through the traumatized atmosphere of Korea's capital, Aimless Bullet artfully blends expressionist and neorealist styles within a grimly introspective portrait of a nation left shattered by hatred and fear. Single tickets to NYFF 61 go on sale in just one week on Tuesday, September 19th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Prepare for your must-sees by viewing the complete screening schedule with up-to-date showtimes and in-person appearances at filmlink.org schedule. Now please enjoy the conversation with Darcy Paquet, Youngjin Eric Choi, and Goran Topolovic. The Korean cinema's golden decade, the 1960s, is sponsored by Movie Go. Get your tickets to the series at filmlink.org slash koreanyc. Uh, so it was really interesting to see this kind of film being made in 1961, right? It was a very kind of stark portrayal of the, the reality of uh, uh, post-war uh, Korean society. And... Uh, how was it possible for the kind of film to be made given the you know social political context of that era? I think that would be kind of interesting. So Darcy, if you could kind of set that stage for us. And yeah, I mean, this is a really unique case in Korean film history. I mean, from the beginning, the film was an unusual project. It was very much an independent film of its time. Uh, the the actors were being kind of paid on on scale and you know they would shoot and then run out of film and then kind of break for a month or two and then raise some money and come back and so it took 13 months to shoot the film which particularly for that era was an incredibly long period of time but in those 13 months something very dramatic happened because yeah i mean basically there was a student led revolution that took place in april of 1960 uh the the president who is in power, uh, Lee Seung-man, had been in power since the country was formally divided into two separate countries in 1948. And he was very corrupt. He was very authoritarian. Uh, he held an election and announced results that nobody in the country believed. And students were demonstrating against the result. And they sent in the police and they shot a whole bunch of students. And the populace responded by basically massing in the street. And after a period of about a week, the government recognized that it had lost control of the country. And the president fled to Hawaii and made a special deal with the U.S., uh, ended up spending the rest of his life in Hawaii. Uh, and so 
this was basically Korea had about 13 months of an experiment to instill democracy in the country. Uh, there was a new constitution that was written. Uh, the new government guaranteed freedom of the press. Uh, within the film industry, they set up a new committee that was in charge of kind of rating films, but their motto was freedom of speech and expression. And so they were very keen to let filmmakers express themselves after you know all these decades when, um, due to various reasons, filmmakers couldn't be honest about what was happening in society at that time. And director Yuhan Mok realized that he had an opportunity. And so, um, you know, he was midway through the shoot, but he started revising the screenplay to make it much stronger. And South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world in, you know, the, the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, North Korea was actually economically quite a bit stronger than the South. And... And yet filmmakers, you know, in the South, if they made a film that was too critical of the economy, then they'd always been suspected by the government of being kind of secretly promoting the North and giving out a message that, you know, the, the situation in the South is inferior to that of the North. Um, but yes, so basically there was a 13-month window between the student-led revolution and the military coup that brought in President Park Chung-hee, who would rule until 1979. Uh, the films that were made during that era are quite special. Uh, not all of them were necessarily as political as this film, but The Housemaid was made during this era, and I think that the director, Kim Gi-young, also had a fair amount of freedom in making that film. Uh, the Coachman, uh, which is also part of this program and which I highly recommend. Uh, and yeah, it was a short period, but a lot of really important films were made at that time. And you can sense that freedom that filmmakers were experiencing in the, the films themselves. Uh, and Aimless Bullet was initially released and there were no problems. And then what happened? <laughs> Yeah, it was released in April 1961, and it was May 1961 when, you know, the economy was kind of going through a rough patch, and there was a sense that the, the country was kind of tilting left politically, and uh, which worried different sectors within society, including the military. And there was a group within the military that decided to take control of the country, and they were successful in carrying out a coup. Um, you know, by this point, the, the film's initial release was kind of wrapping up. Uh, they then tried to re-release the film in July of that year, uh, but then this was blocked by the new government, who just didn't want a film that was so pessimistic, uh, you know, in theaters. And yet filmmakers who had seen the film were really agitating to give this work an opportunity to screen again, uh, because... I mean, even though it was quite unusual and challenging film in a lot of ways, they recognized that uh, the film was really quite special. And so filmmakers began to petition the government. Um, it took a couple of years, and, and the film was then subsequently, as you mentioned in the, uh, in the introduction, uh, it was invited to the San Francisco Film Festival, and the government eventually relented and allowed the film to be released in censored form uh, in 1963. And this was when I think it reached its biggest audience and was able to kind of achieve the 
the status that it holds today. Um, but I think everybody recognized at the time that it would not be possible to make a film like this um, for many decades after. Um, and I guess the, the whole experience that producers uh, had in 1960s and the filmmakers and the film industry as a whole was really shaped by uh, Park Chung-hee government's regulations and really their, their need to control every aspect of production and distribution and exhibition and even uh, you know regulating the number of films that are going to be imported and who's going to which company is going to be able to to import those movies um so how did all that shape up and come about uh you know maybe we can talk about the motion picture law and kind of what were the some of the kind of main uh points of that law and uh yeah, so the new government came in. Uh, they were really interested in developing the country economically. Uh, they saw the film industry as another kind of potential uh, sec you know, commercial sector to develop. And at the same time, they, they were aware of film's potential as an ideological tool. So they wanted to simultaneously promote the development of the film industry while also keeping control over what filmmakers said. And I think that uh, I mean, their their method of doing that, basically, they decided that it would be easier to keep control over, you know, four or five very large companies rather than 60 smaller companies. And so they passed a law that created a new system under which, I mean, first of all, independent filmmaking was illegal. Like, you couldn't make a film like, like Obelton. Um, in order to make films, you needed to get permission from the government. You needed kind of approval. And the government set out a list of regulations. So you needed to own your own studio space. You needed to have a certain number of actors under contract and directors under contract. You needed to own camera equipment and all these. And basically what they were trying to do is to kind of legislate the Hollywood system, like the Hollywood studio system in Korea. Um, at the same time, they created a system where uh, they limited the number of imported films that were being released in theaters. Um, I mean, ostensibly to, you know, prevent foreign movies from kind of swamping the film industry. But the way that they enacted it kind of had the opposite effect. Because, you know, if you only release, you know, 20, I don't know, a certain number of Hollywood mostly or Hong Kong movies per year, then uh, the pent-up demand for these films meant that it was sort of like printing money for the companies that were given permission to release these films. And then what the government said was that, you know, if you produce like three Korean films or a certain number of Korean films, then we'll give you a license to import one foreign film. And actually ticket prices for uh, foreign films were more expensive than for domestic movies, right? So for whoever was, uh, you know, importing and distributing foreign films, that was kind of cash cow for them, right, in many ways. And I guess what was popular also, uh, in addition to Hollywood movies, also kind of spaghetti westerns and Hong Kong martial arts and action movies, right? So that kind of dominated that side of things. Um, I think there's also, um, you know, we talk about studios, right, and kind of their own attempt and building the Hollywood system. And probably the biggest uh, and kind of most prolific studio was uh, Shin Film, which was run by Shin Sang-ho. Uh, and we we have um, you know in our lineup we have uh, the Red Muffler, which is like really great example of a of a kind of Korean style prestige picture, Cinemascope, all star cast, 
um, and it's really uh, could be considered almost like a soft propaganda because it was kind of glorifying the uh, uh, the South Korean Air Force, and uh, it's uh, it's really Top Gun before there was Top Gun, right? So it's it's really entertaining. Um, we also have a, a period uh, a drama. Uh, and Eric, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we also have a, a film called The Goddess of Mercy, uh, the Korean title being The Great Tyrant. Um, this was a co-production between Korea and Hong Kong, specifically Shin Films of Korea and Shaw Brothers of Hong Kong. Um, the two companies um, uh, produced ultimately five co-productions together, and The Goddess of Mercy is the second. And... Um, we included it in the lineup uh, because it represents, along with actually Special Agent X7, which I also highly recommend, uh, it, it's another Hong Kong co-production. There was a series of um, attempts to co-produce films with mo mostly Hong Kong um, because um, this actually is related to the import quota uh, in a way, because um, if it is a co-production, then it, it is considered a Korean film. And so you don't need to gain permission from the government to import this film. So it's, it was sort of a, a way to get around that on one way. And then the other is that you can, there, there's more budget. If each side provides a significant budget, then it become, you can produce a lot more grander spectacles than you would otherwise be able to. And so The Goddess of Mercy is, is, a, is an example of a, an incredibly epic scale uh, period piece that was, would probably not have been possible if it was simply a Korean production. And it's also, am I out of time? <laughs> um, and it's also, um, it, it's a very interesting film because co-productions um, are interesting because we, we tend to a lot of times think of films through the lens of national cinema. This, uh, obviously, this series being a part of that. And co-productions sort of subverts that idea because when you, when you watch the film, you'll, you, you, you'll probably sense a feeling of, I, I can't figure out what, this is it's, it's a very strange they're very strange it's not korean it's not hong kong what is it you know it's it's hard to identify but i think that's sort of the 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 um the interesting part about these co-productions so um yeah the goddess of mercy right um another interesting aspect of 1960s korean cinema is um a number of films that were actually unauthorized uh remakes or adaptations of, of popular Japanese films. And um, I don't know who would like to talk about that a little bit more, how that came about, and maybe Darcy. Yeah, it's kind of a sensitive issue because, uh, you know, Japan had colonized Korea, uh, you know, from 1910 until the end of World War II. And uh, officially, Japanese culture was, you know, back Japanese movies and comics and everything else were banned in South Korea up until the late 1990s. Uh, and, you know, yet a lot of the filmmakers who were working in Korea in the 1960s, uh, some of them had, you know, in the colonial era had studied film in Japan. They'd been trained in Japan as cinematographers uh, like Han Young-mo, the director of uh, Meet Me at Walker Hill. Um, many... People in that era spoke Japanese because 
when they were uh, going to school in the colonial era, they were um, encouraged or sometimes forced to speak Japanese. And yeah, so, you know, Japan had this incredible film industry and, you know, all these interesting films that were coming out and uh, sometimes directors would get a hold of a screenplay from Japan and they'd read through it. And even if they didn't get a chance to see the actual film, uh, they could very quickly <laughs> kind of produce a Korean screenplay. Um, I mean, the whole question of Japanese influence on Korean cinema is, it's a complicated one, it's kind of a sensitive one in some ways. Uh, but certainly, I think Korean filmmakers were very aware of uh, what was going on in Japan, and uh, we can see a lot of overlap and influence uh, in that way. Yeah. Um, and I guess the way the, the Japanese screenplays you know, made their way into into Korea is uh, they used to be published in Japanese film magazines like Kinema Junpo and others, and then Koreans would travel to Japan and bring them back to Korea, and it's like, ooh, okay, I have, you know, we're gonna solve our problems here because we need to fulfill the uh, the quota for how many films we have to produce per year in order to keep our license as as the uh, you know authorized film production company. So it was kind of much easier to do it that way and then than to come up with the original screenplays in some cases, right? So and Eric, you mentioned there was even some kind of uh, cartoon at the time that was kind of making. Uh, kind of fun of that like in order to be a filmmaker you really need to know kind of Japanese and and in Korea right yeah yeah I mean this is a sensitive issue but it's <laughs> but there but there was um a testimony by a screenwriter who will not be named uh and and he basically said in order to work as a screenwriter at the time you first needed to know how to read Japanese because a lot of your work is going to be <laughs> translating a Japanese script into Korean. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, this is nothing to take away from, from the original films and, and all the you know, uh, creativity and artistry that, that existed in Korean cinema and that you're going to witness uh, through the rest of the series. But it was also kind of interesting and kind of complicated subject that was you know, very present in, at, at the time. Right? So, so we're just kind of trying to present you all kind of the full spectrum of, of, of Korean cinema in the 1960s. And we probably need to have like a five or six more panel discussions like this one, right? We're just scrapping the surface of this, right? And even when we were selecting films for this series, uh, there were so many great films that we weren't able to include, right? But we feel that this is kind of good introduction. And uh, when Eric and I were trying to make the selections, we really wanted to... Um, have a variety of different types of films and different genres, right? So this is kind of introduction, and it's a starting point. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was very difficult. I mean, r first of all, it was supposed to be 20, and then we couldn't, we couldn't get, we, we had to make it 24. That's, right. a, that's one thing. Um, uh, but so we, I, we call Tyler. Can we can we squeeze in a few more? Can we do like twenty two? And like okay, twenty two. Okay, great. Yeah, we can do twenty two. And then it was like, hmm, okay, we need to we need two more. Can we like Tyler? Can we? Uh, okay, good. All right, good. We're good. Meanwhile, 24. we need to we needed to prepare that many screening materials. We needed to we were negotiate also more work for ourselves. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah. So it was, but um, yeah. The I think from the get go in our conversation, the our main goal perhaps was that. Um, we would emphasize the diversity and the creativity of the period and not be limiting ourselves to, I guess, what we would consider the canonical classics. And that would be 
The Housemaid, Aimless Bullet, which are obviously incredibly important works and and they're in this series and for rightfully a so yeah rightfully yeah. so but i think our goal was let's let's really kind of blow the lid off of what 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 was possible in the 1960s korean cinema and and that's why the monster movies mm-hmm. and and the um and the 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 spy action movies the horror movies and and the musical the musical yeah which is a, if, if anyone interested in what k-pop sounded like in the 60s that's uh, your let's movie. meet at walker yeah, hill it's an walker amazing hill, film definitely um and and uh yeah it, it's it i think that that was our main focus and hopefully we we well i hope we succeeded here. but i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um and you know this is also for us it, it was a lot of kind of research and a lot of discoveries that we made and uh um it was um um kind of real real journey um and oh one thing i wanted to mention uh about eric uh, so currently, he does work as a, as a programmer for uh, Korean Film Archive and selecting films for Cinematheque, Kofa, right? But prior to that, he was he belonged to a, a special team that was traveling the globe to to find lost Korean films that were scattered around and you know maybe hiding in some dungeons and maybe you maybe part so of exciting. <laughs> private collections of villains and i don't know <laughs> so 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 basically eric used to be like a james bond uh slash indiana jones by, but for lost films so <laughs> this is pretty exciting yeah so thanks eric Um, and, you know, as part of the discovery, I mean, we're really amazed to see, um, to come across two of uh, Chung chang action films, right? So for those of you who may not be familiar with him, uh, he's best known uh, as, uh, you know, director of Five Fingers of Death or King Boxer, right? The Shaw Brothers movie that kind of started the martial arts craze in the uh, 1970s in, in the West, right? But prior to that, of course, he had a, uh, a career in, in Korea. Uh, making uh, genre films, and um, uh, so one of the films that we came across was Special Agent X7, which is really his his take on on the whole spy genre, and um, it's it's just beautiful visually. Uh, it you know it, it has all the trappings of the of the spy films, but it's also shot on location of that time in Hong Kong, in, in, uh, in Japan, in Taiwan, in South Korea. And there's some great action scenes, like beautifully shot. Um, you know, it, the film is really entertaining and, uh, you know, highly recommended. So we're going to have live, live DJ accompaniment for it because unfortunately no sound elements survive. But we're really, that's one of the movies they were also kind of super excited because this is really the first time that people get to see it outside of Korea since the print was recovered, right? So I hope you can make it. Uh, and the uh, the other Chung Chung Wa film I would recommend is uh, Swordsman of the Twilight, and it's very unique because I think there was Chung Chung Wa's attempt to create a uniquely um, Korean style sword fighting films, right? Because obviously, you know, the Hong Kong sword fighting films were popular, and you know, Japanese samurai films on you know, like in the West, right? And, and uh, I mean, there was awareness of, of those uh, genres. Uh, so Chang Chagua really tried to create what would it, 
what would a Korean sword fighting look like, right? So it's not going to have all these acrobatics and, and kind of um, dynamic fighting in, in Hong Kong movies, for example. Uh, so he tried to create a kind of more serene, kind of meditative, kind of slower paced. And like the way he did the framing, it, it kind of almost looks like he's trying to create a, a painting, right, with the with the sword, sword fighters in, in Hanbok and against the landscapes and, and very graceful movements. Uh, so for, for, for us, that was very interesting kind of uh, discovery. So I, I hope you'll, you'll be able to see that one as well, especially if you're fans of action cinema and Chong Changhua. So, I mean, who isn't, right? Um, <laughs> any, any other highlights of the program? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's funny. Uh, uh, some friends of mine asked the same question, you know, like, do you have any recommendations in the program? I ended up listing just 20 of the films. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a problem. Yeah. This is a problem. Yeah. And yeah, um, I guess if I can add just one more, um, one film that um, I, I had seen already, but in the process of programming the series, I had rewatched it and sort of rediscovered how um, incredible it was was is uh, a woman judge yapansa uh, it's by a director hong wan mm-hmm. uh hong wan um director hong wan is very interesting she is the second uh, only the second korean a uh, female korean filmmaker um this is after um director pang namok uh, uh directed uh, a film called the widow in 1955 and then from then on there was only men, and then, and then Hong Wen Wan. She she started out as a, a, a script supervisor, and then for I think she, I believe she worked as a script supervisor for maybe eleven years, and then she graduated to becoming an assistant director for three years, and finally after fourteen years, and she was I think forty at the time, she made her first film, and this was a woman judge, and it. It, be, beyond the historical importance of, of of her status as a female filmmaker, I think the film is incredible. And another thing that's really special about the film is that it was only um, it, it, it was considered lost for the longest time. And then I believe in the mid 2010s, we we discovered it among the collection of a uh, 16 millimeter uh, road distributor, uh, an uh, individual who had a huge collection of 16 millimeter films that they would kind of go from place to place around Korea and screen. And and among that collection was A Woman Judge. And unfortunately, the storage conditions all those decades were not great. And so the, the and, and we, you know, we, we were able to do Aimless Bullet, but we have not yet been able to touch uh, A Woman Judge. But uh, so it's, it, it's not in the greatest condition to watch. But I think despite that, the film... Uh, which begins as a family melodrama about a female judge that um, is trying to balance her 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 career and her 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 dreams as becoming a, 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 her, the first female judge uh, and a career woman with like her family obligations and her duties as a, hou- a housewife, which um, was imposed on her. And and so it's a family melodrama for for much of the film, but then towards the end, it, it pivots in a way that I, I don't really want to spoil. It. it it pivots in a way that's that's very sudden and very fascinating, and it kind of makes you wonder what if Hong Wen Wan, because Hong Wen Wan directed three films ultimately, all in the '60s. A Woman Judge is the first, and then she directed two more. The other two are still considered lost. So this is the only film that we, we can see of hers. And you just wonder what the other films would have been like, and it's such a shame. 
And so I would, if I, if if there was one film that I rediscovered in the process of this series, this woman judge. And this is a really unique opportunity to, to see it as well. So also would encourage everyone to, uh, you know, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of the films in the lineup, right? So <laughs> that, that's basically the takeaway here. So, um, well, I mean, that's all time that we have. And, you know, once again, thanks to, to Eric and Darcy for being our guests. Yeah, thank you so much.